Well, I think there's no question this morning as we meet together here that we live in very troubled and troubling times. We're on the sort of the edge of a change that's going on in the world uh, from a local economy to a world economy, and it seems like it's impacting everyone and every country in the world in different ways, and there's no longer a guarantee to those who are young now that you will have a good income and a bright future, something that many of us counted on in the past, and that's very troubling. And we also live at a time when uh, Islamic terrorism has become uh, a very serious issue, and it's dividing our nation because our leaders are divided over exactly how to handle that, and the mood of the United States is very somber at the present time. We're raising children in a culture that entices them constantly with um, all kinds of things, from the media to illicit sexual relationships and numbing, mind-numbing entertainment and just all kinds of choices that they have to navigate their way through, and it's not surprising that many of them are struggling. And we live at a time when the Christian faith has come under fire. I think most of us are aware of that, especially as we approach the, the holiday season, the Christmas season. As we look back, we can recognize that there was a time when Christianity, at least in what people said, was sort of the dominant faith in the United States, but that has been replaced by secularism, and radical atheism is on the rise. And if you want to live openly for Christ, it's a, a more difficult time to do that. And you'll have many questions that come to you, and they won't all be asked very nicely, it seems. These are very unsettling times to live. And we want to ask a question this morning, and the question is, uh, what should we do at times like that? How can a person hold to a robust Christian faith living in a very troubled time? You know, in the face of economic difficulties and uh, social upheaval and emotional turmoil that people are facing, what does it mean to live openly as a Christian and to speak openly about your faith in God? How can we live faithfully in times of trial? Well, this morning, uh, we're going to begin looking at the book of Ruth, and Ruth is a book that is tailor-made for that question because it describes people living faithfully in very difficult times, and there are a lot of things we can draw from it. This morning, we're not going to look at the whole book. We're just going to look at the first chapter, and it kind of helps us set the context of answering that question, what does it mean to live faithfully in troubling times? Ruth follows the book of Judges. If you know anything about the book of Judges, they describe uh, Israel in turmoil when they were under the leadership of judges who really were warlords, who in different clans rose up and delivered the people in some small area, and then their power waned and other ones arose. It was a troubling time. In fact, the, the key phrase that's used in the book a few times is, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And the book ends with two snapshot pictures of that. What does it look like when everyone does what is right in their own eyes? They're uh, two, two uh, short stories that, that tell you, here's how bad life was among the people of God at this time. It was so bad that, well, the first story is about a, a Levite, a priest, in fact, who uh, sells his leadership, his priesthood, 
to the, the highest bidder, to the tribe of Dan, and, and he does whatever they want him to do, and it's you know, complete with an idol shrine with idols, and um, there was an attempt to turn the pure worship of God that had been revealed in the law into a Canaanite fertility cult. And one of the priests was leading it. He came from Bethlehem. The second one also concerns a priest who came from Bethlehem. And it's this sordid story how he had a, a concubine. If you don't know what that means, it's like um, a live-in friend with benefits that you have no responsibility for. His concubine had been unfaithful, so he went and retrieved her from her father's house. On the way back, he stays in a village, purposefully stays in a Jewish village because he doesn't want to enter a city of the Canaanites. And there, uh, the men of the town gather around the house where he's staying, and they uh, threaten to uh, abuse him homosexually. But instead, he puts his concubine outside and says, here you go. And uh, they gang rape her all night, and she's found in the morning with her hands clutching the threshold of the house, and she's dead. And the story gets worse. He takes the body, and he cuts it into 12 pieces. And he sends one piece to each of the tribes with a note that says, what are you going to do about this? And the tribes rise up against the tribe of Benjamin, where the, the um, city was that he was. And, and there's a near extermination of one of the tribes by the others. That's how bad life had gotten. And the, the, the second story ends the book, and it ends with that common statement. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I want you to know when you open the book of Ruth, which is the next page, it starts with these words, in the days when the judges ruled. It also takes place in Bethlehem. Scholars call this the Bethlehem, Bethlehem Trilogy. There's three stories about Bethlehem. The first two are sordid stories, and the third one, the book of Ruth, starts in such a way that you have an ominous feeling that this is going to be another story of how bad life had become in the nation of Israel. In fact, the chapter opens and ends on a very sad note. And it goes like this. Because of a famine, a family in Bethlehem, from Bethlehem, in Judah, the tribe of Judah, they leave and emigrate to the country of Moab to live. Now, that tells you a multitude of things. For one thing, in the law it says that God would send famine if his people refused to obey him. Now, that does not mean that every single drought or famine is an example of moral failure in people, but it enlightens you that this one probably is because you just finished the book of, of Judges and you see how degraded the worship of God has become, how unfaithful the people have become, and all kinds of immorality and unethical behavior is going on. And so you're enlightened the fact that under the judgment of God, he's making life difficult for his people. He's bringing discipline on them to awaken their hearts to him. But this family, they leave the land, and they go, of all places, to the country of Moab. Now, that's a neighboring country. It, it was the ruthless enemy of the people of God for generations. They had a, a a distant connection. The Moabites were born of Lot's uh, eldest daughter by incest with her father. Lot was the Abraham of nephews, so they had this distant historical relation that by itself was rather sordid. But even more than that, when the Israelites left the promised land and they were seeking to go 
to the, or excuse me, left uh, Egypt and they were seeking to go to the promised land, the Moabites refused to give them passage through their country. They made them travel a long roundabout way to get around them. And um, then they hired a pagan priest to curse them. And when that didn't work, they enticed the Israelites into immorality. The Moabites worshipped a vile god named Chemosh. And they practiced both cult prostitution and child sacrifice. They were considered uh, immoral. Their culture and lifestyle was considered dirty. And so for a covenant family within the people of God to leave the promised land and to go to the country of Moab was an act of uh, unfaithfulness. And there in Moab, the husband dies. The sons marry Moabite women, and uh, then the sons die. And the mother, Naomi, is left as a widow with no husband, no sons, and responsibility for two daughters-in-law who are now widows. She has no property, no future prospects, and no hope of protection, which would require being a part of a family or a clan. So she decides to return to Bethlehem. At least there she'll have protection from her husband's family or potential. Someone might seek to take care of her. And after encouraging her daughters-in-law to return to their homes, their ancestral homes, and to their gods, the one departs, and the other, Ruth, refuses to leave and and, uh, vows to stay with her. And so they return to Bethlehem. And kind of like bookends, the chapter opens on a sad note of the story of this woman and her family who traveled to Moab, and she loses everything. And when they return, they come back to Bethlehem, and it says the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? The implication being they don't even recognize her. It's only been 10 years, but her life has been so difficult. Is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. The word means pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, reading this story hard on the heels of the book of Judges, you think, okay, here's a third example of people acting unfaithfully towards the Lord. The people of God not living as they should. And it's shown in the sad lives of this backslidden family who didn't follow the Lord. However, in the first chapter, there's this ray of hope that occurs right in the middle, this uh, three-part conversation between Naomi and her daughters-in-law. And and I, I want you to look at verse 15 if you have a Bible. In verse 15, it kind of becomes the key that enlightens you the fact that there might be a ray of hope in this terrible story of somebody from Bethlehem and what they did. That it may not be just a continuation of everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Verse 15, and she, Naomi, said, see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. 
is an important word in the Old Testament, very important word that shows up in this passage, not the part I read, but right before it. It, it, it becomes the dominant word used 16 times in this book. It's the Hebrew word chesed. And it requires a little bit of explanation because there's no word in the English language that describes what this is. Um, in Ruth, it's usually translated kindness. It's found in verse 16, the first time. May the Lord deal kindly with you. Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, may he show chesed to you. But it's often translated in the Bible that we're using here, uh, steadfast love. It means a loyal kind of love, a commitment to another person and to his or her welfare. It's used of God most truly to describe the attitude and the way he treats those with whom he is in relationship. He shows them chesed, and it describes his unconditional pursuing love that he shows towards people who are in covenant relationship with him. It's often considered or called covenant faithfulness. This is a book about that kind of faithfulness. It's about God's faithfulness, his chesed, but it also is about how two people, Boaz and Ruth, showed chesed in the midst of a society that was crumbling and all kinds of bad things were happening. Chesed is based on a commitment, and it's a commitment that this passage shows us moves in two directions. This is what we need to focus on. This kind of love is what God's people are called to display to other people. It's not a romantic love. It's not a feeling of affection. It's a feeling of commitment to the welfare of another person. And it moves in two directions. It always moves towards God and towards the people of God. It's a commitment that's made that says, I will be faithful to God. And it says at the same time and in the same breath, I will be faithful to the people of God. Um, it, it's often pointed out that this is, is what is pictured in Ruth's uh, words here. She speaks very few times in the book, but everything she says is incredibly significant. And obviously this passage is she declares this commitment to her mother-in-law to whom she has no blood relationship and no further responsibility according to everything in her culture and their culture. And it's often pointed out it is her conversion, at least in a public sense. We have no idea. We're never told her inner feelings when her husband was alive about the God of Israel. There's nothing revealed about that, but we know at this point she publicly declares that she is now a follower of the Lord. She makes it clear that she intends to be a worshiper of the one true and living God. She says, your God will be my God. And she's declaring commitment. And then she uses the name of God in the end in an oath. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts you from me. When you see the word Lord in your Bible in capital letters in the Old Testament, it is a stand-in for the name of God. In the Hebrew Bible, it's four consonants, Y-H-W-H. No one knows how to pronounce it. And it is uh, usually translated by the word Lord or Sovereign. But when you see it in capital letters, it's telling you there's the name of God. And Ruth invokes the very name of God in saying, I will do this. It's an oath of faithfulness that is made. And that's true for the people of God in all ages, that 
our public discipleship is made through a commitment that is owned by us in the presence of other people, customarily under the new covenant that is done in baptism. Baptism is the point where a person declares faithfulness to God. He intends to build on a personal commitment to be a follower of Christ and to do the things that Christ has commanded. And when a person confirms his intention to do that, he or she is saying, I intend to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to be known as a person who seeks to live by his commands. A person who does that says, God will rule my life. It's the entrance into a life of discipleship, publicly saying, God will rule my life. As I move down the pathway of life, I move through my pilgrimage in this fallen world. I want to make my choices in conscious submission to God's will. I want to seek to know what it is he wants me to do from his word. And then I want to put it into practice. I want to use my times and my, my time and abilities and resources to honor God. I want to seek to stay away from those behaviors and entertainments that dishonor God and which are harmful. I want to choose to spend my time doing those things and with those people who will prosper my spiritual life. I want to raise my children to honor and obey God and not just let them adopt the standards and the values of the culture around me. And more and more, this is what chesed is. It's faithfulness, a faithful commitment to God. And at the same time, and, and in the same breath, she declares a commitment not only to God, but to the people of God, because in Scripture, those two things are tied together. When a person recognizes that God has so worked in his or her life to bring them to a sense of uh, ownership by God and a knowledge that I'm saved because of what Jesus did, a first realization ought to be there are others who have also experienced that that's what a church is meant to be made up of, people who belong to Jesus Christ, and then they own that publicly, and they seek to do it together. And so this kind of love, this faithful, steadfast, loyal love, has to be lived out in relationship with other people. And that's what the story of Ruth is about. I can't prove it now. That's what the rest of the story will tell us. You'll have to accept it for now. You show this kind of commitment to God, by concerning yourself for the welfare of other people who also belong to Jesus Christ. It's not attraction to people. It's not even necessarily always enjoyment of them. It is a sense of commitment that these are the people whom God has given me to live my life with and among and for and to benefit from, and I'm going to do that. Ruth makes that kind of commitment, but too many people don't today. They go to church asking the question, do I like it? What am I getting out of it? Was the music to my taste? Did the preacher say things that made me feel good or, or whatever? But the real question that is forced to be asked by people who want to be Christ followers is, what are people getting out of me? Am I encouraging my brothers and sisters? Am I a part of a people who are seeking to work together to advance the cause and the purposes of God. And Ruth makes that kind of commitment. And on the basis, she lives out a story that will be remembered for all time. In fact, I would say it's because of Ruth that none of you, when you hear the word Bethlehem, 
Think of the stories at the end of the book of Judges. Whenever you hear the word Bethlehem, you think of the birth of a Messiah. Well, it's because of Ruth. You see, here's what happens in the end of the story. In the end of the story, Ruth has a child, and Naomi takes the child and lays him in her lap and becomes his nurse, and it's evidently an act of adoption. She is saying, this is my son. He will carry on the line of my dead husband, Elimelech. More about that as we go on in coming weeks. But she adopts this child, and we read in the end that the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Ruth was David's grandmother. This was a woman from a filthy, immoral culture, a child-sacrificing family who left it all to become a follower of the one true and living God. And um, David was one quarter Moabite. The Gentiles from an early period were brought into the people of God when Ruth made this commitment, your God will be my God, your people will be my people. David was the king appointed by God. He's called the man after God's own heart. He is the first of the messiahs. Because all the word messiah means is anointed one. And the king was the anointed king who followed in the line of David. And every one of his sons, his descendants, who reigned on his throne were measured in the Old Testament. They're measured by whether they did live like David and exemplified God's law or whether they fell away from David's example and lived in degrading ways. And David does that, and it goes on until his greater son, the Messiah, the one it all pointed towards, who perfectly exemplifies what even David didn't, comes to be born in Bethlehem. You see, um, David was the grandson of Ruth. And she's the reason why when you think of Bethlehem, you don't think of the sordid life that people were living at that time in that city. You think of the Messiah who was born. So whatever your background is, whatever your experiences are in life, whatever kind of family you grew up in or didn't grow up in, whatever you've done in your life that you feel stained by, if you are a Christian, God has accepted you, made you a part of his people, welcomes you into the family of God and invites you even today to come to his table. Only the foundation of your faith must be a commitment to live openly for his son. Let's pray. Again, Father, we thank you for the fact that you are a God of grace and a God of strength. Thank you that uh, you give to us examples of people who sought you in the past and determined in difficult times to live for you, and we pray that you would help us to do the same, whatever we are facing. And we pray, Lord, that you would give to us a spirit by which those of us who belong to you might come to your table today and worship you in the way that you have commanded. 
and we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.